0: Please take your Bible and turn to Luke chapter 15 this morning. Our passage today is one of the most familiar stories in the Bible for many of us. Even if you've never read the Bible, it's likely you've heard the story that this passage tells. Luke 19.10 tells us that Jesus came to seek and to save the lost, and this passage tells that truth in the form of a story. This is the only one of the gospel accounts that tells us this story. In other words, if Luke hadn't written this story down, we would not have it in our Bible. So we're thankful for the Lord giving it to us by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. In Luke 14.11, a passage we read just last week, Jesus says that everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And again, this story tells that theological truth in the story, in the, in the form of a story today as well. So I'm going to read all of chapter 15 now, and then we'll allude to this passage throughout the sermon. So Luke chapter 15, I'll be reading from the English Standard Version, any faithful English translation that you have will be just fine as you follow along as I read this uh, this passage aloud for us. Luke chapter 15. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Each December, the people in Farmington, Maine, a small town in the middle of Maine, host a parade. And it's not a normal Christmas parade like maybe you would expect a parade to be about in December. It's designed to celebrate a man named Chester Greenwood. In fact, it's called Chester Greenwood Day in Farmington, Maine. Chester was an engineer and inventor uh, known for inventing earmuffs in 1873. So if you wear earmuffs this winter, you can thank Chester Greenwood. Thousands of people gather to celebrate this man, and actually the best part is he didn't even invent them. He just improved what had already been invented, and yet he still got a day out of it. He still gets a parade about it years later. But don't tell the people in Farmington, Maine that he didn't actually create them because I might burst their bubble and uh, they want to be on the map. This is what puts them on the map to the point that a man in Chicago is preaching about Farmington, Maine right now. But you know, the point of this story is to say that we celebrate a wide variety, an unusual variety of events and milestones. We celebrate holidays and birthdays, graduations, the arrival of the weekend sometimes. What we celebrate, though, says something about us. It says something about what's important to us and what's not important to us. What we refuse to celebrate says something about us. Just because something is celebrated, of course, doesn't mean it's a good thing. Our culture celebrates all kinds of things that we would not want to celebrate. But then there are some events or matters of importance that aren't celebrated as much as they should be. There are some events that are not celebrated as much as they should be. Each passage in the book of Luke that we've been studying over the last several months together is answering the question: who is Jesus? And what does it look like to, and you fill in the blanks. Please. Someone. Close. Alright, let's say it again. What does it look like? Who is Jesus and what does it look like to follow him? Right? This whole book is about being a disciple of Jesus. That's what it was written for. It's a man named Theophilus who was likely a new believer. And so Luke, who had firsthand contact with people probably like Mary, and perhaps like the shepherds in Luke 2, with the disciples, with a wide variety of people who are described in this book, Luke writing probably 30 years after Jesus died, was buried, and rose again and ascended to heaven, he may have never met Jesus himself. We don't know, He was himself a doctor, we find out from other parts in the New Testament. But Luke is writing for the benefit of Theophilus to answer the question who is Jesus and what's it look like to be one of his disciples? What's it look like to follow him? And basically, every sermon that I've been preaching through Luke has been answering that question in some form or another. Sometimes the emphasis is much more on who Jesus is. And so the answer is Jesus is, and you fill in the blank, the one who works miracles, the one who is. The, the, son of, the Son of God or the Son of Man, the one who came to seek and to save the lost. We've answered that question in a variety of ways. We've also answered the question, what does it look like to follow Him in a variety of ways? It means you take up your cross and follow Him. It means you repent and believe the gospel. And we could go on and on. The answer to that question in today's passage is that those who follow Jesus celebrate and mimic the Lord's joy in saving lost sinners. What's it look like to follow Jesus? It means you celebrate and mimic the Lord's joy in saving lost sinners. So what should you particularly celebrate? What does this passage say we as Christians should celebrate? Should we celebrate Chester Greenwood Day? Probably fine. Probably not unbiblical to do that. But what should we celebrate far more enthusiastically? We should celebrate the Lord's initiative in pursuing you. That's the message in verses 1 through 10. Celebrate the Lord's initiative in pursuing you. Chapter 15, verse 1 tells us that tax collectors and sinners were drawing near to hear Him. These were the people, tax collectors were the people who, just as a review, uh, were so wicked that people didn't even allow them to uh, give court testimony because people assumed you could not trust the words of a tax collector. There's no way he's going to actually tell the truth because he is a dirty-handed individual who just wants to take all of our money. That's the reputation that a tax collector had in the first century. He was a deplorable person. These sinners that he describes here are people who are known by their sin. They're marked by their sin. So perhaps by being with prostitutes, perhaps by being thieves, perhaps even by being murderers, These were people who were the most deplorable, low-level people in society. And yet, this passage says they were drawing near to hear Jesus. They were like moths or bugs on a summer night flocking to those nasty, zapping lights that people have in their backyards. Why do they flock to those lights? Because they love the light. And here sinners love Jesus because he's saying something that speaks to them. That ministers to their heart. He's telling the truth about who they are. People were attracted to him because of his demeanor, his gentleness, the fact that he's gentle and lowly. They were attracted to what he said. They were attracted to how he said it and to his ministry, what he was doing. But not everybody was attracted to him. Verse 2 makes that clear. Some people were so unattracted by what was happening that they were grumbling The Pharisees and the scribes. And again, just as a review, these were the Jewish leaders of the day, seeking to ensure that the Jewish people followed God the way they were supposed to, obeyed all of God's laws exactly the way they were supposed to. And if they weren't, they would enforce that law themselves in in, in many ways. But instead of celebrating and drawing near like the tax collectors and sinners were, what were they doing? They were grumbling. And every time this word grumbling is translated in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it's in passages like Numbers and Deuteronomy or Psalms referring to Numbers and Deuteronomy where God's people were grumbling because God hadn't been kind enough to them. Well, now now, now these Pharisees and scribes, I should say, themselves are grumbling. They're complaining. They're murmuring to one another about the fact that Jesus is eating with sinners. How dare he, they would say which is about as stupid of something to say as, that doctor helps sick people. Like, did you see that person with cancer walked into that cancer center? How dare they? And yet, these Pharisees and scribes are making that kind of comment with that kind of attitude. From their perspective, Jesus wasn't nearly exclusive enough. He wasn't upholding the law the way he should by staying away from unclean people who could sully his reputation. And this is what they were upset about. Jesus should have nothing to do with these people. was their attitude, the, the attitude of the Pharisees and scribes. But instead, he's treating them like they're normal people who simply need the grace of God. How does Jesus respond to this grumbling? He tells them a parable. That's what chapter 15, verse 3 tells us. Pharisees and scribes are grumbling about the fact that Jesus is treating sinners as if they can be forgiven, as if they can receive the grace of God. And so Jesus tells them this parable. And I want you to notice in verse 3 there, I mean, probably the shortest verse in this chapter in terms of how it was divided by those who inserted the verses hundreds of years ago for the sake of reference, he told them this parable. So that tells us who it's for. It's for the Pharisees and the scribes. It tells us what he did. He told them a parable. And a parable is basically a story. Sometimes it's a contrasting story. But it's a single parable. It does not say he told them these parables. And that's why I'm preaching all of chapter 15 in one sermon. I know many people who, and I do not fault them for doing this. I could very well see myself doing this down the road, preach just the story of the prodigal son, in like five sermons that's very doable because there's so much in that particular story but i think the story of the lost sheep and the lost coin and the lost son are all making one point all telling one truth and so what we see here is jesus telling a story of the fact that god faithfully pursues sinners and that's worth celebrating. That's what these first 10 verses are doing for us, telling us that we should celebrate God's initiative in pursuing us. In verse 4, what would motivate, and we already read it, so I won't read it again, but what would motivate a shepherd to leave 99 safe and healthy sheep just to go find one? What would motivate him? He sees that one sheep as having inherent value. It is worth his time. It is worth his his effort it's even worth the risk that while he's away the other 99 sheep will be like sheep and be dumb and follow after him and run off of a cliff or any number of other things but to him it was worth trying to find that one sheep and this passage made me think of james five nineteen and 20 and the inherent value that we need to seek to show as church family as a church family for those who wander away from our church james five nineteen and twenty says, "My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. There is inherent value in one sinner is what james five nineteen and twenty tells us, just like Jesus tells us there's inherent value in one straying sheep. I love the tenderness that verse five describes of this shepherd who has gone and found this sheep, it says that when he found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And we just sing about this, say 20 minutes ago. Perverse and foolish, oft I strayed, but yet in love he sought me. And on his shoulders gently laid, and home rejoicing brought me. Not home chiding brought me. Not home guilt tripping brought me. Home rejoicing brought me. Why did he bring me home? Because he went searching for me. And if you're a Christian today, that is your story. That is your testimony. And if you're not a Christian here today, we're thrilled you're here. We hope you'll be here again many more times to hear the word of God. But if you are not a Christian, that means that the Lord is still yet saying, Come on to me and I will give you rest. His arms are open wide to you. The book of Revelation would say that he has bread for you. He has milk for you that you can have. And Isaiah says that you can have it without money and without cost. God's arms are open wide through the shed blood of Jesus to say, come unto me and I will forgive all of your sins. I will make you clean. I will wash you with the water of the word. So this is a beautiful description of the gospel. He sought us when we strayed, and so then we praise him for his unshakable, unflagging commitment to rescue us from ourselves and from our sin. And the celebration that verse 6 describes, of calling his friends and his neighbors together, again, this sounds like a big block party, it sounds like a Super Bowl party. What are you celebrating? It makes us ask, what do we celebrate? And the principle that I think this passage draws out for us is that those who have received grace love to celebrate grace. We love to sing of amazing grace and how sweet of a sound it is that saved wretches like you and me. Verse 7 says that the celebration over that sheep that has been found is like the celebration over one sinner that has been found. And you see that he describes the sinner coming to the Lord in repentance, Luke talks about repentance a ton. I don't know if you've noticed that or not. If you read through Matthew, I think you're going to read, repen, read about repentance seven times. If you read through Mark, you're going to read about repentance three times. If you read through Luke, actually if you read through John, you don't read about the word repentance. If you read through Luke, you read about repentance 13 times. And then 10 more times in Acts, which Luke also wrote, talking about the repentance that was happening in the early church. In other words, Luke hammers on this concept. He thinks this is a super significant theological concept. And repentance means turning away from your own wickedness and turning toward the Lord. There's a very definite shift in direction because there's a very definite shift in your mind. You've come to recognize that your own sin is repulsive before God and that you could never possibly Deal with your sin in any form, in any way, on your own. And so you come to the Lord who himself offers forgiveness to repentant people. But verse 7 seems to offer this category of people who don't need repentance. It says, there's joy in heaven over the one who repents more than over the 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Who are those people? They're non-existent people, but let's remember who Jesus is telling this parable to. He's telling this parable to, Two people who in their minds had no need for repentance, Pharisees and scribes. So Jesus is essentially reading the room here, telling this story. Two people who desperately needed repentance but were totally blind to that reality. Verse 8 tells a second story, but again, it's making the same point, telling the same truth about a woman who has ten coins not a lot. That's basically probably 10 days worth of working. What that means is she's probably saved up really diligently because maybe that means she didn't eat those 10 days. Maybe she would say each week, I'm going to not eat one day so I can save up 10 coins. Well, if you're that poor and then you lose one tenth of your savings, it's a relatively big deal. And so that's why she goes all out trying to find this one coin. To us, maybe you would say, yeah, quarter, no big deal. No, this is like a very big deal. And so she gathers a light because they probably lived in small houses with no windows or very small windows and probably had floors that were just kind of rocky and sandy and dirty. And so she starts getting down on the ground and sorting through all the mess on the ground. And she searches diligently. 11 years ago, actually it was October 29th of 2011, uh, my wedding ring flew off my hand while I was playing football out about an hour and a half west of here at a friend's house. And the reason that was a big deal A, is my wedding ring, and B, is my dad's wedding ring. And the reason I know it was October 29th of 2011. It's because I know it was 2011 because I was living in this area at the time. And I know it was October 29th because it was my parents' anniversary. And I nearly lost my dad's ring on his own anniversary. So my dad died about three or four years before I got married. And so then when I got married, I took his ring. And I love wearing my dad's ring. And it flew off in a football field an hour and a half west of here. We stopped the game right then. like well, There was no more, oh, we'll catch it later. It was, everybody, get on your hands and knees. We've got to find this ring before the sun sets. And so now you've got 20 people climbing through the grass in this field in whatever town, Sheridan, Illinois, I think, trying to find one wedding ring. And we obviously found it. And I was so glad we found it. We rejoiced that we found it. We started the game again, and I was more careful after that. But the point was, why did we seek so diligently? Because of the value of the item. And that's what this passage is telling us, that the Lord has graciously pursued us because of our immense value to him. Again, you might think, what's the big deal? She's got nine more coins. No, this is a very big deal. This passage makes us consider when we think about how earnestly the Lord chased after us, we might think, well, I appreciate it, but I could have eventually turned around and started chasing after him. No, the Bible tells us that that never happens. Why does that never happen? Because the Bible tells us that before we were rescued by the grace of God, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. What do dead people chase after? Absolutely nothing. The only reason you have spiritual desires is because God himself put them in your heart. And so praise the Lord for his faithful searching for you for His initiative in pursuing you. Secondly, verses 11 through 19, celebrate the Lord's patience toward your foolish sin. He's patient toward your past foolish sin. Have you also considered that He's patient toward your current foolish sin? You celebrate the Lord's patience toward us. Verse 11 begins to tell a story. So instead of asking a question where He said, what shepherd or what woman now he just says let me tell you a story there's a guy and he has two sons and so we know there's an older brother in here somewhere because he's he talks about the younger brother starts with the younger brother so we know that the older brother part of the story is an inherently important part of the story we'll come back to it toward the end obviously but what this younger son says is dad you're better to me dead than alive That's what he means by saying, give me my inheritance now. Like, I want nothing to do with you the rest of your life. I wish you had already died so I could get my part of the inheritance. So if you would go ahead, just give me everything that I deserve. And the dad did. That itself was amazing. So he takes his property, not many days later, and he gathers all he had. What's that mean? He's burning the bridges behind him. He never intends To see this plot of land again, this farm perhaps that he grew up on, this father who gave him life and took good care of him and protected him, he never plans to see him again. And he goes on a journey into a far country and he squandered his property in reckless living, in prodigal living, in wasteful, extravagant living is what that means. But then he spent everything. He clearly failed to think through. I'm not earning interest on this inheritance. He failed to think through. I need this to last the rest of my life. That's what it's intended to do. And he lives foolishly. And before long, it says that he's uh, feeding on the husks, is the way the King James Version tells us this. He's longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. It doesn't tell us if he actually ate them, but it shows us the level of desperation that he had come to. He's starving, and yet no one gave him anything. What a pitiable, pitiful situation. He's burned everything he had through riotous, profligate living. I love verse 17, though, that says, when he came to himself. When he came to his senses, when he woke up, and realized all that he had and all that he burned through. Not just the capital he burned through, but the relationships he burned through. When he came to himself, he started thinking about what it would be like to go back. And what I want to just pause and have us consider at this moment is give thanks. Celebrate the Lord's patience toward your foolish sin. I don't know how many of you spent most of your life as unbelievers before you became a christian if you've done that and maybe in some of our other cases you've been a christian as far back as you can remember like you were praying you were reading the bible you were going to church as little as a child as you could possibly remember and you never really walked through a rebellious time in your life if that's you praise god for his faithful protection for you don't just pat yourself on the back there's no reason to pat yourself on the back Praise God for watching over you and protecting you. But even if you were the choir boy, so to speak, like the model citizen in your Sunday school class at the age of 5 or 12 or 16 even, even if you were the model citizen, you were still a foolish, rebellious sinner. And God was patient toward you. And so I want to urge you to celebrate that patience that God has manifested so brightly through His kindness toward you. Celebrate the Lord's initiative in pursuing you. Celebrate the Lord's patience toward your foolish sin. And third, verses 20 through 32, celebrate the Lord's excessive grace toward you. Celebrate the Lord's excessive grace toward you. A prodigal, which is, again, the word uh, described You find it here, his reckless living, his prodigal living. A prodigal is like someone who's throwing a party that is simply over the top. The food is over the top. Like, how much per head did you spend on this party? The decorations are over the top. The entertainment, the miniature ponies wandering around the field that you're in. All of this, the gifts you get when you leave the house that night, it's all over the top. And you think, man, The only reason they're having a party like this is so that people walk away and say, wow, what a great party. But that's the kind of excessive grace that God has shown toward us. The word prodigal means generous or excessive, extravagant, lavish, wasteful. God has been the prodigal God, as some commentators and theologians have said. He has been extravagant in His grace toward us. Verse 19 tells us that this this young man, the younger brother, is imagining himself going back home, even verse 18, saying, I'm going to go home and say, I've sinned against heaven. What's he saying there? I've sinned against God. That's what he means by that. And I've sinned against you. Of course, we remember Psalm 51 where David says, against you and you only have I sinned. We know that our sin, in other words, is first and foremost against God. No matter what your sin is, no matter how many times you've committed it, Your sin is first and foremost against God, but your sin often still does have devastating effects on other people. And so that's why he's acknowledging, I sinned first and foremost against God, but I've also sinned against you, Dad. And he's imagining what he's going to say when he walks up that hill to his father's house, and he's imagining himself saying that he's no longer worthy to be called your son. Do you know what a disciple does? A disciple acknowledges his unworthiness before God. You are not a Christian because you were worthy. That is impossible. We're going to take the Lord's Supper later on. You're not going to take the Lord's Supper because you are worthy. If I said, come forward and take the Lord's Supper, if you are worthy, hopefully no one would walk forward. I would bar you (laughs) if you started to walk forward and said, that's me. I was like, nope, you clearly just disregarded what I was saying. You clearly just disqualified yourself as being worthy by thinking that you're worthy. No one takes the Lord's Supper because they're worthy, because no one has been saved because they are worthy. And what a disciple does is acknowledges that. He says, I am not worthy to even be considered your son. I burned that bridge months or years ago. And so he imagines himself in verse 19 saying, treat me as one of your hired servants. But then he goes to his father and while he's still a long way off, it's like the father's maybe leaning on the balcony of his house and looking out as the sun is setting, looking down the hill, and he sees a figure off in the distance. He can't quite make out who it is, but he can recognize the gate. And have you ever seen like a governor or a senator or a president sprint across a parking lot in a suit? No. You have not. I hope not. That's undignified. It's not what you're supposed to do. What this guy does, the father does, is undignified. He's not supposed to run as an older, wealthy man in this culture. He doesn't care. He just wants his son back. That's how much he loves him. That's how great and prodigal his grace is, how excessive his grace is. I love verse 20. Notice the verbs in verse 20, particularly the second part of it. His father saw him, felt compassion, ran, embraced him, kissed him. There's a beautiful string of verbs that Luke put together here because Jesus put together in the story. And then the son starts his confession of sin against God by saying the sin against heaven. And against his father. And it's like the father ignores what he says and he cuts him off. Do you notice? So let's just compare verse 20, verse 19. Last line of verse 19. Treat me as one of your hired servants. That's what he's rehearsed himself saying. He never gets a chance to say that. Why not? Because the dad is so enthusiastically lavishing him with grace and forgiveness. He never has a chance to say, I just want to live in the back shed. You don't need to give me the emblems that I'm your son, before he could even get the words out, he gives him the emblems that he's his son, the ring, the robe, and the shoes. Servants wouldn't have been wearing shoes most likely, but a son certainly would. And this man was making no mistake about it, that this man was his son. So acknowledge your unworthiness. As part of what it means to take up your cross and follow him. Part of what it means to walk in repentance, to remind yourself again and again that I was dead in my sin. And the only reason I'm not anymore is because God made me alive, because God moved toward me. So how should you respond to this kind of prodigal grace, this overwhelming, lavish, almost wasteful grace? You should do what you have done today. You should come to corporate worship and celebrate God's grace with God's people loudly and enthusiastically. Corporate worship is a wonderful mechanism by which we celebrate God's grace toward us. We celebrate His grace by confessing our sin, by realizing that even though He has forgiven me, I continue to sin in the same old stupid ways. And we ask for His forgiveness again and again. And we tell sinners that you're hungry, you're thirsty, you're weary, you're heavy laden, I have an answer for you and his name is Jesus and he is willing to welcome you with open arms if you would come to him. This celebration in verse 25 where the people are dancing, there's music playing. It reminded me of the one scene in Star Wars that I can remember where at the end of one of the movies, I don't know which one, I could have asked my children, they would have told me exactly the minute and hour mark in which movie it was, but where they're all dancing and celebrating. And they're all, the Wookiees, I think that's what they're called, the little brown bears, look like little cubs. What? Ewoks? I'm sorry. What's a Wookiee then? Never mind. Let's not go down that that road. I truly don't know the difference. But these little creatures are dancing and partying. There's something worth celebrating. It's like the five million people who gathered in downtown Chicago to celebrate the Cubs winning the World Series. There's something worth celebrating here. But there's someone who's not eager to celebrate. Let's just remind ourselves of verse 2 just for a minute as we get into the last portion of this passage. The Pharisees and the scribes grumbled saying, he throws parties for sinners. That's what they said in verse 2. So he told them this parable. Now let's go back to verse 25. There's a Pharisee in this story. He's the older brother. He's not celebrating. And the whole message that I've been trying to tell you through this sermon is that those who follow Jesus celebrate and mimic God's celebration, God's grace. You celebrate God's grace and you mimic what the Lord is like in His celebration. When the son, in verse 25, the older son, I should say, is out in the field doing his part, right? Working hard, keeping the family business going because Somebody else isn't doing it, so I've got to do it all myself, is probably his attitude. He learns what's going on, and what's his response? Anger, jealousy, hypocrisy, a feeling of being disrespected. You know, Dad, I could have been a jerk too, if I had wanted to. And instead of feeling like he's getting what he deserves, it feels like the son is getting way the the younger son is getting way more than he deserves feels like the dad is rewarding wickedness. feels like the dad is playing favorites. Have you ever been the sibling who gets the short end of the stick? But that's simply not the case. What's really happening is the dad is doing what he would have done for the older brother too, if he had done the same thing. And it's what we would all want to happen if we were the younger brother coming home. Everyone in this story celebrates. The person who lost the sheep. The person who lost the coin. Both of those people went and gathered their friends and their neighbors to come and have a party over what they found. Here the father's celebrating, the other servants are celebrating. There's one person in the story who's not celebrating and it's because God's grace is repulsive to the self-righteous. Those who think they have their act together find it disgusting that God would forgive someone who doesn't have their act together point of this parable is that the pharisees hated jesus's grace toward sinners toward tax collectors and sinners eating with them how dare you they hated jesus for extending his grace this makes me think of acts 15 where people are trying to figure out do non-jewish people get to celebrate get to be christians the same way that we do as those who were raised the right way as jewish people there's a fountain of grace for others too. We can lift ourselves up. We can scorn that God would give grace to people who we don't think deserves it. But that's, that's hypocrisy, that we need to confess, thinking that we in some way deserve forgiveness and other people do not. I often think of what I would feel if Aaron Rodgers walked into this door, walked through that door right there and sat down. And immediately... I mean, without any sense of humor to it, immediately I would love him for the first time ever, but I would love him and I would pray for his repentance and I would pray that he would find a warm welcome here. I would love that to happen. If you don't know who that is, don't worry about it and I'd urge you not to Google it either, but my animosity toward that individual would wither away like frost on a cold morning as the sun comes up. I would love him. And I would preach the gospel to him, and I would offer him to take me out to lunch, I think is the way that would work. But what I'm just saying is, when we recognize the grace God shows us, we want to show it to other people as well. When we recognize the extent of how foolish we have been, we revel in God's grace to us. And so I want to urge you, in light of this older brother, to repent of trusting in your own moral performance to earn God's approval of you. God accepts you, not because you haven't sinned as badly as some other people, but because your faith is in the only person who has never sinned. It seems that the Father's reception of the Son tells us that God sweeps sin under the rug. And I want to tell you that that's simply not the case. This parable isn't intended to give us every theological lesson possibly needed for the church, but God does not sweep sin under the rug. Instead, He poured it on His Son. And his son hung on a Roman cross bearing the slave's execution so that you did not have to bear that sin yourself. And so, as we wrap up this morning, I want to urge you to humbly thank the Lord for his initiative toward you, his patience toward you, his extravagant forgiveness toward you. I want to urge you to celebrate the Lord's pleasure in finding the lost. This is why Jesus came. Luke 19.10, The Son of Man came to seek and save that which was lost. Perhaps you're here today praying for someone who's running. It's not that they've started walking back toward you. They are still running away. I want to urge you to keep praying for them. Keep waiting. God can work in shocking ways. Maybe disruptive ways, but He can work in shocking ways to bring sinners back to Himself. Maybe you're angry at someone who is running or who did run. And maybe you're angry that when people came back, people received them warmly, like you would want to be received yourself, but it wasn't you, and so you're angry about that. Maybe you are running. What I would say to that is, it is never too late to come home. Come home today. We deserve the exact opposite of the grace and the mercy that the Lord gives us. And so those who follow Jesus celebrate and mimic the Lord's joy in saving lost sinners. Would you today celebrate and mimic the Lord's joy in saving the lost? The Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. And so those who exalt themselves will be humbled, but all those who humble themselves will be exalted. Our Father, we pray that you would build in us a deep hatred for our sin and a deep sense of the unworthiness in our hearts for your grace but then an overwhelming sense of gratitude for your patience toward us, your pursuit of us, and your extravagant grace toward us in Christ. May this grace, then, compel us to fight our sin, to make war on it. May it compel us to tell thirsty sinners that there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. May this be our song all the way till the end of our days. In Christ's name, amen.